Diversity in Writing podcast, the show where we as authors explore the better practices of writing inclusively, whether that be in terms of race, gender, ethnicity, class, sexuality, ability, and so on. Why are we here? To bring more depth and breadth to the characters in our fiction and represent them in the best way possible. My name is Bethany A. Tucker, and with me each week is my co-host, Marielle S. Smith. Ready? Let's dive in. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to part two about writing men on doing diversity in writing. So as I was last episode, Luvi Tucker is with me to help me discuss writing men. And this is our follow-up in our series. We just did writing women parts one and two. Then last month we did writing men part one. And now this month we're probably wrapping up writing men part two. We'll see how long this takes. The last recording session was at least 30 minutes longer than I expected. Luby and I had a lot to say. And I expect that the same will happen today. So, Luvi, thank you for coming back. I am like, I mean, technically, I never left because we live together, but I'm here. Yes. <laughs> you make that sound so much more salacious than it actually is. Mm-hmm. Has been mine. Oh, sleeping with the guests, I tell you. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. So last time we wrapped up talking about expectations, wish fulfillment characters, how we can write characters that still play the role that some wish fulfillment characters fulfill, but do them in non-destructive ways or ways that don't create unreasonable expectations in our readers. So we had, we stopped right before we got to writing physical anatomy of men, male characters. So that's where we're going to pick it up today. Are you ready? I am ready. My penis is ready too. Let's go. Oh no. Oh no. We're we're there already. Oh yes. I'm so glad we have an E rating. An E rating? Oh, (laughs) I'm sorry. I'm thinking video games, E for everyone. Like no, no, E does not mean for everyone in podcast world. All right, so much like we discussed writing anatomy for female characters and female presenting characters in our Writing Women series, we are also going to cover that for writing male characters, which is one of the reasons I really did want Luvi to be on this episode with me, because I do not have a male presenting body. I do. Things I just don't experience. This is where I go to my sensitivity readers and my advisors when I'm writing. <laughs> so <laughs> are you, you, you've already told me that you're ready. I'm not going to repeat what you said. Mm-hmm. All right. Okay. I, serious I'm time. very red right now. So Luvi, do you have any pet peeves about things that writers or media presentation does around getting men animatomically wrong? Just to start. Hmm. Largely, I believe the male body is well understood and has been studied over centuries. I can't really think of anything as far as representation of the male body that is, anatomically speaking, that is incorrect. I think we all have an understanding of the anatomy of men. Now... 
if there's so anything when, i i'll go for it so yes we know what the anatomy of mint is but as we're writing we cover the full range of the experience inside the male body so maybe we could talk about that right well one thing i did think about is um speaking of penises this is is um the male erection and I, I promise this is going somewhere somewhere more serious but we have this idea that men are excited like um the only reason why they get excited and you know they get boners is because of some sort of sexual excitement whatnot some sort of sexual stimulation when a guy can have a boner in the middle of the night after a nightmare like i'm not sure how you explain that but those are other instances of when the male anatomy i suppose another way how the male anatomy can function it doesn't have to just be a sexual encounter it could be just in the middle of the in the middle of the night so sometimes when we're reading books especially in the romance genre when women are writing books for women certain physical tells are are used a lot to imply that the man is excited about seeing the woman or the love interest on the page and you're saying this can happen not just because of excitement but it can also happen in other times and this is sometimes not well represented in writing or right. at least it becomes the brunt of the joke. Yeah, I feel that this is going to sound odd, but I feel that we can use the male erection in other ways besides sexual arousal. I have done a little bit of research on this. I forget why I did it. There's My search history is littered with all kinds of things I've looked up. Please don't pull my search in history. It's not who I am, I promise. But <laughs> I'm a writer. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, but there are such things as men and women who experience the nervous system experience fear as a form of arousal, which might be why some men experience erections after having nightmares. Interesting. Yeah. That it's anything that gets the nervous system going can be translated to what appears to be sexual arousal or for some people is sexual arousal, but it's different than just being like, I'm excited because there's a pretty face in front of me. It's just, it's the nervous system doing things. I would, I would honestly like to read a book of a male character who gets aroused after nightmares. Really? I think it would be very interesting in my mind of trying to find out how would you come up with such a character? Like, is he addicted to horror movies? Is he a thrill seeker? You know what? I bet he's a thrill seeker. I mean, this sounds like something we could research and find out. Like I can go pull this, the psychological books from the library. Hmm. It's a thought. <laughs> I, All right. I think speaking of being aroused I mean, there's also the flip side of arousal as well which is you know men could find themselves in a sexual situation and not be aroused 
we often hypersexualize men. So we think they're always going to be aroused in certain situations. And I kind of feel sorry for guys because like people are looking for physical signs of arousal that women aren't under the pressure to produce as much. And sometimes they're not going to be aroused. I was just thinking of our conversation from the last episode, how some people, the way they describe how to write men basically feels as if men are being downgraded to animals, basically. So the best way to tell if a man is aroused is if he's humping your leg. But that is (laughs) not advice. That is not advice. Please don't use that in creating a male character unless it's for comedy. Or you want to highlight an issue. I don't think you'll find it in any of my books. The secondhand embarrassment would be too strong. I will be impressed. I will be surprised, not impressed. I'll be surprised if I do. <laughs> yeah. So I think this leads, it does, it does lead straight back to what you were talking about, where men are complex creatures. They could be attracted to someone and not aroused. We, I mean, we actually, men operate all the time without becoming aroused and sometimes they're aroused and they're not sexually attracted it's just a thing that happens Hmm. and i i guess it's an it's a nice shorthand to use in sexual situations to be like yeah the guy's excited but there's so many other things as writers that we can explore to show male excitement and male desire besides whether or not the penis is sticking up or down heart flutters that sick feeling in your stomach. Sweaty palms. The shakes. Faster breathing. Shakes. Feeling really wide awake. Almost like you've been running. It's like uh, a high. Obs- uh, like obsessive thoughts about the person. Especially if you're writing deep POV. There's so much you can do about like the feeling like the hair rising on your arms. The urge to get closer. The tightening in the stomach. Warmth. There, there are so many other ways besides saying his penis was hard. <laughs> I have read so many books where I'm like, I'm just flipping pages because I do not want to read about hard penis anymore. It is I'm raging. Like, it's boring. It's really, really boring. The throbbing and pulsing. I, I'm done. <laughs> It's really boring. Please, when you're writing about a man who is sexually excited, get more creative. (laughs) You know what? Speaking of throbbing and pulsing, and I promise it's not about penises this time, another pet peeve of mine that comes up in media on a regular basis. And we touched on it last episode, but these bulging muscles. It doesn't always have to be like, steroid abuse level of bulging muscles but when you think of the man man he has muscles you know he has nice triceps um biceps definitely has a six-pack not a beer gut and his ass is just amazing i don't know about you or everyone who's listening but recently i've gone outside and i don't see those guys on a regular basis (laughs) yeah maybe you guys have but I haven't and I, I, mean, I look I look too I'm a very short woman 
So sometimes I see these really, really tall men who are quite rare. And I'm like, I don't think I would be able to kiss him regularly unless he literally picked me up. I'm five foot one. And, you know, I'm reading some of these novels now and then. I almost put one down and DNF'd it, did not finish it because I think the main hero was supposed to be six foot seven and bulging muscles. And I'm like, I feel like he's another species from me. Like, I can't relate. And I'm sure there's some tall women that would love that. But there were so many books I read within the span of like one month that had these really tall men. Like a guy was six foot two and he described himself as short. And I was like, really? <laughs> you're six. You're almost a, you're almost the height of a house. How are you short? I, and I mm. just like, I've seen this in my friends, family members, where guys just feel bad about their height. And I'm like, you are average height. You're a good looking average height man. It's okay. (laughs) You don't have to be so tall. There is more than one thing that's attractive. I mean- Sorry, I wanna say size (laughs) size isn't everything. Go on. Size is not everything. It's not. Like not to make tall men feel bad about themselves. There's a partner for everyone. Women come in different sizes too. And people have different attractions, but we can write a variety of male sizes and still have them be heroes, still have them be people that we like, still have them be villains that we like to dislike or like to like. Some people really are into villains. Just could we not do inhuman size men? Like double check and make sure that you haven't populated your entire book with men that do not actually possibly exist unless you are literally writing another species of people in like a fantasy book or sci-fi novel. And then, you know, all bets are off. Have fun. Do what you want. So, yeah, yeah. I I went on a rant there. Sorry. No worries. I, I do agree with that, though, that I, I'm just thinking six foot seven. I know there are people out there who are that tall, if not a little taller, but by that point, you start having physical issues. issues. Yeah. And yeah, like at that point, your height is almost a disability just because of how hard it is to operate inside of houses, to buy a bed that fits you, to buy clothes. Heart has to pump harder to get the oxygen throughout the rest of the body. Yeah. Yeah. So at that point, you know there's there's other concerns and as someone who's very small let me tell you it is hard to go shopping I can only imagine what it is for them like I can like shorten a pair of pants if I have to but Mm. anyway the practicalities start to add up I'm very practical in my writing like I want to figure out how it all works because that gives me more like opportunity to stick those little plot points and twists in there so Anyway, your average height, so I think. I'm pretty average height. Last time I checked the American average height. It's only like five foot eight or 10. That's about yeah. my height, yeah. Yeah, it's like, it, it was between like five, 10 and six, but it was, it was under six. Like six is not average. Six is tall. Six feet is tall. Yeah. All right. So 
may I throw another pet peeve in about hype? Okay. Always, always, always having the quote-unquote alpha male, the dominant male, the romantic love interest being taller than the girl or anyone else they're dating, even if they're not in a male-female relationship. Like, always having them taller. Like, sometimes... Sometimes if you can be switched, please. <laughs> you know, this touches back on, again, last episode where we talk about the idea that power has to be put on the man and being tall or being taller than the person you're interacting with is one way to show, it's a very primitive way to show that you are the more dominant of the two or the more powerful of the two because you're taller or bigger and so forth. I have read a handful and by a handful, I mean a very, very small amount where there was like a very small woman in a relationship with a very large man, but she was the leader in their partnership. Mm-hmm. And I really appreciate this. Just the, the way it was written, the way there was a relaxation, a trust and the way the author delved deeper to display the power dynamics, to display the love, the affection, the exchange that happened. And the guy wasn't, sometimes it's done, about half the time it's done. If the larger man is not displayed as the leader, then he's displayed as like the dumb giant. Mm-hmm. And I think we all can think of a dumb giant trope. One of the most famous ones would be in Princess Bride, although we all love the giant in there. He's, he himself says, I'm not the smartest man. And that's almost a thing that just happens. It, it's a trope. That's why we all recognize it. But he doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't he have doesn't. to be, oh, you're tall and you're a leader or you're tall and you're stupid. Like you can be tall and average. <laughs> there is there's a game I've played. It's called Saints Row 3. And it's a wacky I would say knockoff of GTA, but it's his own game now. But anyway, in Saints Row 3, there is a character you meet, you meet, and his name is Oleg. He is this big, bulking, tall, most likely Russian character in the game. And as you expect, he can just bulldoze his way through things, and he is very intimidating. But he is also a very good chess player. And he is also very smart. And that was, I thought that was a good change. I thought if I could play as Oleg, I definitely would play as Oleg. I like that. One of the tallest men I ever met, I think he was actually six foot seven, um, was very, was quite intelligent, almost poetically soft-spoken and careful in his words. Uh, so that's probably influenced me as I think about really tall people is just like there's more than what we often write and this is something where we as authors we need to dig deeper we need to figure out how to demonstrate interactions it's so easy to reach for those shorthands of let's make the guy tall so he's a leader let's do this let's do that and just have these physical characteristics that like speak to personality but I say we we need to go deeper than that Mm-hmm. Do we have any examples of short men who did well as characters? Since we keep talking about tall characters, Hobbit. <laughs> Hobbit. That's a good point. 
That is a good point. I mean, in the Lord of the Rings universe, you have the hobbits, you have the dwarves. They're they are not tall now. Granted, maybe they're tall for their species. But Pippin and Mary grow taller during the course of their journey because they have the end drink. But for the hobbits who do not have the special elixirs to drink to make them a little taller, I think I think the way how these characters were written in the stories is a good way to show that I mean, really height is just I would say a number, but it's only a physical trait. It doesn't define who you are. Yeah, that is something that Lord of the Rings does well is present a whole lot of different body styles. Right. I was trying to think if there's an example from the Marvel Universe. Ant-Man doesn't count. I, I mean, that was the first thing I thought of, but then I also dismissed it. I really like what happens with the Hulk where he blends. Oh, in the cinematic universe. Yeah. So he's wearing glasses and really smart, but he's, I found that adorable. And maybe that's just me. Everyone's going to like characters differently, but I really like when they, they took both of those tropes, the scrawny nerd scientist and the Hulk and blended them into one character And he has this really awesome monologue in a diner where he makes an argument for for himself. I would say other short characters that have done really well, if people are worried about writing romantic leads or hero leads that are short, would actually be Harry Potter. He's pretty short. I always assumed he he was average height. Among his peers. Maybe in the books... And I think they did some adjustments when filming, but the actor himself was like shorter than everyone else by the end of shooting the films. Oh, yeah, did not know that. He's he's pretty short. Her, Hermione, Emma Watson is taller than him. I, uh, I can see that. Yeah. Although I do think they adjusted a little bit while they were filming, which I wish they hadn't. I wish they let him stay as short as he was. Um, who else? Peta from the hunger games i would say he's about average he's one of katniss's love interests yeah i remember that yeah was there anything else that you wanted to bring up about physique the way we write physique the way we stereotype characters into physiques that we could be doing better or examples where it was done really well by challenging it hmm as opposed to on the flip side is the idea of a wimpy or not very strong male character. He, they make him look more, they give him more of a feminine physique. So no bulging arms here, maybe shorter, smaller, so forth. Definitely have glasses because, you know, that's the trope. Mm, I find that as another peeve of mine. Just simply because you don't have to be a scrawny kid to be wimpy. That is true. That's very true. I have problems with the term wimpy, but... I couldn't think of a better word. 
Yeah, someone who's not strong. There's different ways to be strong. And so often with male characters, we codify their personality into their body directly. Right. Like someone could be mentally strong, but their body isn't very strong. And there could be different reasons why their body is not strong. It could be, well, I'm not too sure exactly how muscular dystrophy works, but that's a possibility. Or maybe they're just not allowed to go outside and free range play where they could build up extra muscles or whatnot from playing. Or maybe they have a healthy allergic reaction to working out. Yeah. I, think, I think there is a condition where somebody's own perspiration causes them to break into a rash. There is, that is an actual condition where they will turn into a rash if they sweat. There is another condition where someone is allergic to water. They will literally break out into a rash if they come in contact with H2O. I would hate to have that. But yeah, yeah I mean, there's, there are other reasons why someone may not be bulking up, if you will, or working out to look stronger. But this is another opportunity for us as writers to let someone have a presence, let someone's words work for them, let someone's knowledge work for them, let someone's Mm -hmm. ability to be emotional support. Maybe they're not well-educated, maybe they're not strong, but this male character really understands people and just being there for them. Or they have a way of seeing something that's different, or they have a particular skill set. There are still a lot of ways to make these characters attractive. And I use that term very broadly, not just in the sexual sense, mm-hmm. and make them interesting and to dig into their backstories and figure out why they are the way they are. But right. so often we just do this shorthand personal body equals personality. And that I don't that is a pet peeve of mine. <laughs> Having someone's body type define their personality. Now, there is personalities that will drive people to develop their bodies in certain ways. Right. I think if you wrote a character, and in this case, since we're talking about male characters, if you wrote a male character, starting off with the personality and then deciding what their body type will look like because of the personality, I feel that is different from writing a male character building his physical types out first and then defining the personality based on that physical trait. Something that I like to play with is having people have, having characters have to deal with what people assume about them based on their body type. Because even if we as writers are able to function beyond that, we're still having the reaction of other characters towards those characters based on social expectations of that body type. So it's all these layers that we're writing through and expectations and viewpoints. We have our own, we have the characters, we have the other characters, we have our readers, and we have to be aware of all of those as we put these characters together and place them in a scene and then write that scene out. Great. I mean, it's a lot of work, but I think it's rewarding. It's really rewarding. That's why we keep doing it. <laughs> That's why we slave away over the keyboard or typewriter. Your preference. The hot, the hot keyboard. The pin. <laughs> All right. Let's talk about sex drive and body image. 
we've definitely been talking about this already, but I felt like it needed to be its own category. And I know a lot of this is going to refer back to like romantic scenes or romantic interests, but it definitely still will show up in other genres very strongly. So sex drive. There's Mm -hmm. this trope that desirable looking men, Mm -hmm. and I use desirable looking men like all the tropes that we've been talking about, want to fuck all the time. No cuddles, no softness, just fuck, lust, be done, move on. I think at this point, us and our audience know that this is not the case, but this is a trope that exists. All right. Again, if that was the case, every time I see a pretty lady on the street, I... I'm assuming I'm desirable looking. Then that means I'm going to walk up to her and hump her leg. Because that's all I'm thinking about. Even even dogs don't do that. No. No, they're except for that one dog. That one dog when we visited that one house. That that's different. That's that That dog. That was a weird dog. That dog needed um, to go out to play. But obviously men are not like that but as far as writing goes coming with coming with male characters i think it is a it's honestly a shame that good looking men are only considered to be sex machines in a way that i feel that saying that a good looking guy all he's thinking about is having sex or quote unquote getting some I think that also takes away from the the character development of that character yeah and you don't have to be a good looking man to have sex on the brain in an overwhelming way either Mm -hmm. I think there are a lot of good examples of male characters that have done well that do not have sex on the brain all the time. I would actually point to the MCU again, since we've mentioned them already. Uh, Doctor Strange hits so many of the classics of a classically handsome man, but except for occasional longing for his former girlfriend, he's not a very sexual character, actually. And I found that was really well done. Like he's on his mission. He's focused on what he's doing. He's trying to keep Spider-Man alive in some occasions. I just found that that was that was kind of a relief in the last movie, actually, to not have that always be a driving force. Another thing to consider as far as men and sex drive and, you know, being good looking a lot of that is in the eye of the beholder. You know, you could have a good looking guy who doesn't feel physically attractive and probably doesn't want to expose their bodies to other people. It's, it's kind of like how teenage girls now, you know, where they look at these magazines or Instagram and whatnot, and they believe that they have to look like the models in these pictures or these influencers and guys go through a similar thing they look at these men who are like bulging with muscles or whatnot or really good looking they look at themselves and think that's not me at all even though they are good looking they think that's not me and don't want to 
share themselves, if you will. Yeah. No, almost everything that happens to girls and issues of body image with girls also happens to men. Everything from like, I'm too fat, so I'm going to hide my body and not try to date to I'm too skinny, I need to bulk up. These these are real issues. I am mm-hmm. glad that I'm seeing them addressed a little bit in some forms of media. I would love to see the bulk of the canon of English literature be even more open to allowing men to have a range of body styles and that being okay and not the brunt of a joke. Like so, so often men themselves and women will make men's bodies the brunt of a joke often in terms of desirability right i think a good way to show or if you want outside of writing but if you want to get an idea of um different physiques being capable of doing things the olympics you have these giant mountains going around doing weightlifting contests and whatnot and then you have these very athletic men doing gymnastics and flipping in the middle of the air catching themselves (laughs) on a bar and you have these lean built men who are running for who knows how long and then you have like your average looking dude doing judo there's and I know I only focused on men on this one because of the podcast of course it applies for women as well but I think that is a good way to show, you know, even the Paralympics as well. Um, That's a good way to show like different types of physiques and body types that are still very capable. Very capable, very well-trained, high levels of skill. Um, I often think of sumo wrestlers, actually, like the story you told me about seeing the two sumo wrestlers on a bicycle in Tokyo not only that a sumo wrestler match when they do the leg lift I cannot do that I can't do it and they're so flexible they are like people make these assumptions about men who quote-unquote have dad bods or chubby but then you don't know whether or not they're like throwing wood around in the backyard and doing deep you don't know fat fat is a perceptive you don't know what's underneath that you don't know what their physique is and with your dna or the type of work you do it's gonna look a different way i am happy to see a little bit of like uh a little bit i've seen some books where they allow someone with more quote-unquote a dad bod to be an attractive lead character or a hero in a story I'd like to see more of that in a healthy way. Because, I mean, I'm going to speak as a girl here. Girls, women, men who are into men, our partners cover the whole range of body styles. (laughs) Our reading can too. (laughs) I, I think we're strong enough to read different types of body types in novels and literature. I don't think society would break down. All right. So in terms of 
sex drive related to that would be these these concepts of intimacy and intimacy in male characters can be a dicey subject sometimes it's done really well and sometimes cultural norms are just completely ignored and intimacy means different in different cultures even inside one country which is why I tell people to research what they're writing about please please research it but I thought because of our experiences, we could share like differences and in what intimacy means. And I don't mean intimacy merely in terms of sex, although that's part of it. The intimacy between characters who aren't having sex is a thing. <laughs> that is that is true. So oh. go ahead. I was going to oh. hand it over to you. Oh, would you like for me to share one of my life experiences of go intimacy with another man? It was very steamy. It was steamy. It was very steamy. So before I learned about intimacy with another man, I of course I, I was am American. revoking your straight card. Nope, I'm <laughs> keeping it. And <laughs> my first year in Japan, I was a student, and I had a friend there, and he was shorter than I, kind of stocky. Pretty sure he was a weightlifter, or he became a weightlifter, and. What we would do is we would pretend like we were definitely dating each other. And so in the student lounge area, we would say like loving things to each other and like hang around each other, sitting each other's laps, things like that. It was all an act, but we were so, but we were so comfortable in our own bodies and with each other that we could do that. Now, Imagine this is 2007, 2008. The thought You're of trying Japan. to do that in America, in the middle of Ohio with my friends. I mean, they might try to drag me out in the middle of the night. I don't know for sure. But I think in a lot of literature these days, like the normal hetero, uh, heterosexual literature, if you will, the regular romance novels you don't see a lot of male-to-male intimacy that is non-sexual because it seems to still be frowned upon in western society or american society when we lived in asia we saw a lot of male intimacy that had nothing to do with sex like, there's a lot of hugging lot hanging of hugging. each other in in China, I regularly saw men of all ages holding hands with men they were not romantically involved with. Uh, I've seen in, in some of my research on Middle Eastern cultures, the same thing, men holding hands in like Saudi Arabia. I believe that's where I saw those photos when I was doing my research. Double check me before you write a book, please, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't actually spent a ton of time researching male intimacy in Saudi Arabia specifically. But we just need to understand that these cultural things mean differently. Like sometimes when I was with people in China, they coded some of these Chinese men that were having intimate relationships or intimate touch with other men as being gay. And it wasn't. It was not a homosexual or homoerotic moment. It was just friendship. Mm-hmm. But because of the lens through which these you know, American college students were experiencing the world, that's how they read it. 
And so as we're writing books, double check what you're doing. Like, even if you're in a, like an international city, you're going to get people from all over the world and different touch is going to mean different things. Right. And that kind of made me think of, I believe it is in the Middle East. It's, it's kind of related to touch. And at the same time, it's not really related to touch, but a handshake in the States and a handshake in the Middle East, I want to say Saudi Arabia, have to be done differently. And what I mean by that is in the States, when you do a handshake for guy to guy, you know, you try to squeeze each other's hands to see who you can send to the hospital first. But in Saudi Arabia, if I remember correctly, if it's Saudi Arabia, you do not do that. You could go for a handshake, that's fine, but you do not give a tight, firm handshake because that is a sign of aggression. It's really a sign of aggression. We actually put up with, compared to other countries, the U.S. puts up with a lot of aggression in our day-to-day experiences that is completely frowned upon. So a lot of, I guess the opposite of intimacy is something we should bring up here, the way men interact the way white men behave in Asia is often overly aggro for the situations they're in and it's inappropriate, <laughs> like embarrassingly inappropriate. If you've yes, lived there a is. while and, the, and then you see a tourist walk by, you're like, I'm not with them. I'm I've not, done this several times. Yeah. So something that I had to teach, I think we both had to teach our students when we were teaching cultural classes in China was how to handle an aggressive western handshake and i can't i cannot even tell you how many times i'm working with a young man or i'm working with a young businessman or woman and i'm like firm up that handshake firm up that handshake and i just i actually went for it several times finally got it across i'm like i'm gonna show you what it's like to shake a hand of an aggressive businessman and then i would squeeze the heck out of their hands which luckily i have piano fingers so i can do Mm-hmm. And then they would finally get it, but they would think like, why would you do that to each other? I was like, you got to show that you're strong and that you're trustworthy and that you're not a limp fish. And it's such a foreign idea. I, I kind of felt bad for my students, to be honest. Right. Because anyone, well, almost anyone could give a nice, firm handshake. That doesn't mean you're honest. But it is something that we use in certain cultures is that firm handshake. I don't know how many times I was told as a young person growing up, if you can't give a firm handshake, no one's going to trust you. Again, I, I am not a psychologist. I'm not an anthropologist, but a part of me wonders in more material for writing male characters is what if the firm handshake, the one that you try to send your other person, send the other person to the hospital. (laughs) What if, that is their only form of male-to-male intimacy because even hugging another guy, I mean, it's changing now, but there was a point where hugging another guy, at least in the States, was also looked upon questionably. Yeah. When I was in China, especially as a student, I would see this in the dormitory. There'd be like five or six guys, you know, 18 to 26 in one twin bed watching TV and in American terms, I would say it looked like a puppy pile. They're all over the top of each other, hanging out, laying on each other, whatever. And it's just because touch, 
friends, literally just friends. Mm-hmm. Um, and you see this in dysphoria cultures in the US and Europe. Um, I think European men are a bit better at touching each other in some countries. In some countries, yeah. Than the US. I don't know about Canada. Uh, I haven't spent enough time around Canadians with multiple Canadian men in the same place to see how they interact. I've only seen Canadian men in situations where they were the only Canadian man. But um, yeah, the anything from backslapping to how they hold hands to in, how bathing is actually a social interaction in many cultures. How much of this do you believe? I'm going off topic a little bit and I apologize. I promise I'll bring it back. But how much of this do you believe stems from the Victorian era? Hmm. As far as men being less intimate with other men, less touchy, quote unquote, touchy feely with other men. Because I'm thinking about Shakespeare again. I'm thinking about Romeo and Juliet. Romeo and his cousin Tybalt and their friends, at that time, they were kind of hanging around each other, like all like buddy-buddy. And I mean, I saw a play and I think Tybalt gave like a playful kiss to Romeo on the cheek and things like that. They were definitely puppies hanging out, (laughs) like all over each other. Um. And I say that with the most amount of fondness. I would actually say a little bit of research I've done um, is that it's the standoffishness of males in the U.S. is a bit more recent than the Victorian era. I think some of it started there, but some of it has been correlated directly to the rise of the LGBTQ plus um, civil rights movement where straight men or Christian white males, especially, but Christian males of other um, ethnicities as well, wanted to separate themselves and make it very, very obvious that they were not sexually interested in other men. And so the divide that had already started a little bit got wider. Mm -hmm. So you end up with those phrases like no homo bro or stuff like that. I'm probably not even saying it right. But there was also an aestheticism that came out of Puritan culture where no one was touching anyone. And there was a period of time in Catholic history. So we're covering a lot of Europe with this where you weren't even supposed to be like physical with your wife unless you were producing children. Like that was a standard. Yeah. Of course, people did not necessarily stick to that. It's kind but... of hard to. <laughs> yes. It's easy to stick to them. Mm, okay, go on. But it was this idea that you weren't supposed to be taking any pleasure. And so I think you have to look at like these cultures that prioritize everything over like good communal ties if we're writing about cultures that really value warm social ties over say economic success you're going to see a different body behavior 
Mm-hmm. And this goes again. We touched on this last episode that when we're writing male characters, we also have to be cognizant of the time period that we're writing them in. And the so, class. And the so, class. Males of higher class across cultures have generally been less touchy filly with each other just because there's this idea of needing to maintain class. Um, you'll see this with kings in multiple countries where people can't even look at them or only a handful of people are allowed to approach within 10 feet of them. Um, that happened in some, some dynasties in China. Uh, the, the king of the Aztec empire, when he, people like approached with their eyes cast down, so it's partially a class thing. Nobles had different boundaries. Like it's it's not functional to have more than one person you can't even look at. But <laughs> I would say it's not functional to have anybody you can't even look at, but that's a different thing. So yes, um, rank definitely matters. So um, yeah, it's really hard to make broad sweeping strokes here, except to say that look at your time period and that it's not what you expect. Like so many writers and people that I meet inside a culture that haven't seen other cultures, really think about it. Even if it's in your own hometown, realize it may be different. All right. There's one guy, and I do this personally. Uh, some guys, there are they're more of a handshake type of guy, maybe not so touchy-feely. And other guys say, come on, bring it in. And we give a nice bro hug. Yeah. Yeah. Bro hugs are nice, by the way. If you haven't tried it before and you're a bro, you should try a bro hug. You do. I, I hug lots of my guy friends, actually. And it always makes me sad when I realize, oh, this guy hasn't had a hug in a long time, but he has a bunch of guy friends. I'm like, come on, bring it in for your guy friends. Be nice to each other. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. So we've we've probably wandered fairly far from writing and people understand it. So we have some questions that we kind of gathered that we were going to go over. Are you ready to move on to them? Yes. All right. So one of the first questions we, that came up for us as we were putting this together was the level of emotional maturity in men sometimes has to be explained when we're writing something. And it's supported by backstory to be believable to audiences. So when you're writing, think about your audience. Think about the tropes they've come to expect. Think about their assumptions based on where you're placing your characters, the time period, the community, maybe even the city um, and the job that they're in. And take a moment and think about this is where you want to think about stereotypes. This is where you want to be like, what are the assumptions people are making about my male character? And then as you're looking at the the social maturity, the emotional maturity of your male character, you may have to build in to your backstory, whatever that is, especially if the character is extremely emotional mature. Why? because that may be expected from a female character in many times, but not from a male character. What do you think? It is important to establish why a male character has the emotional maturity, maturity or immaturity that they have. 
And just to put it out there, you know, when we were saying have a backstory for them, you don't have to spend a whole chapter writing a backstory explaining exactly why they are the way they are. It could be something in passing, like another character say, oh yeah, he had a pretty rough childhood. Nobody gave him hugs. And so that explains why he doesn't have the emotional maturity that he should have as an adult. There's, there are definitely ways to do it, but you do not necessarily have to explain it all in one go in one chapter. You could do it in pieces, have um, some character exposition, other characters kind of making side comments as to why they behave the way they behave. And remember, not all male, not all male characters are going to behave the same way. And not all male characters are going to have the same reason why they behave the way they behave, even if it's the same behavior. I really like it when it comes up naturally, when backstory comes up naturally. You can have a character show up and be whoever they're going to be. And if it's really unexpected or really doesn't seem to align with what's been set up in that first scene that they show up in or their situation, you can just let other characters treat them differently or say he's an odd one or who does he think he is? Like you can have a character who's just emotionally well adjusted and doesn't get pulled into other people's shenanigans and say he shows up in a tavern and he's sitting there reading a book of poetry and being well adjusted. And there's a whole bunch of people who are just drinking their wages away after a hard day's work and being loud and starting fights. And we've actually seen this happen in real life. They get annoyed because there's this person reading a book of poetry. Who does he think he is? Mm-hmm. Like, go somewhere else like do you think you're fancy pants whatnot like the insults fly you don't have to break away and do a backstory about why this guy reads poetry or you know he was stranded on an island and that's all he had or he's his best friend died in a bar fight and he decided to change his life if it's acknowledged that they're different and the author knows why it's different then it can be woven into the story like he could another character could grab that book of poetry, open it up and realize that there's like a personal letter in the front from someone who matters. And then you explain two chapters later who that letter, who wrote that letter. And the reader, trust your reader. People, people are actually fairly smart. Trust your reader. They're going to slowly feel that reward of understanding why this character is different. And it's going to mean more to the reader than just an exposition of this character is different from the other people in the community because... there's not much payoff there yeah don't give it away like when you were writing peter in your book the visitor he's a little bit odd with his co-workers in that first chapter but then we realize it's because he's got all these questions and those questions show up naturally as he goes about his life even while the plot is thickening we start to understand the disconnect discontent that's simmering in the background but if you had said in the first chapter, which you actually did in your first draft, Peter like just felt at odds with the world. That's rather boring to read. Like, why should I keep reading? Yeah, here's another character at odds with the world. But when mm-hmm. you rewrote it as you grew as a writer, I just started to see he was at odds in the world. Right. Which was a much more rewarding experience. And then your reviewers, they, they liked that. <laughs> It was a lesson I had to learn 
and writing. Sorry to put but, you on the spot there. No, no, it's okay. Again, I am not a professional author. I'm sorry, there's a lizard looking inside my window. I am not a professional author. However, I am an author. And, you know, as an author, I am learning as well with each time I come up with, when I draft a story or come up with characters, I am learning as well. So I do put a lot of thought into these things now. Yeah, and this is why we all have drafts. I mean, you've seen my trunk novels, all the novels that are written and not going to be published. There's like They'll an never entire... see the sun, right? <laughs> They'll never see the sun. <laughs> There's probably about a million words I wrote before I felt life started to be good all right so let's move on if you're ready all right we got this okay so again we've touched on this in relation to other things especially body types but there are a lot of words much like Marielle and I covered when we're writing about women that are derogatory my personal rule of thumb is always to be aware that the word you're using is derogatory which sometimes people do not realize, and I'm surprised mm-hmm. by it. So creating awareness in yourself, but you can use them because they're going to be used unless you're writing a, a book that is being stripped down for kids or you're writing like a clean, cozy or something like that. Books that are sanitized because the readers want them to be sanitized. You're going to have these words naturally show up. So we're going to go over some words that should be used consciously but may still show up in your writing do you have any perspective to bring to that before we jump into the list of words my first thought was i feel for a lot of these words depending on who you're writing about um i feel that a lot of these words there's a good chance that you're going to use a derogatory word in your writing from like an antagonistic point of view, if you will, or maybe even from a protagonistic point of view, as long as it's used within context and is understood how it's being used. With that said, I'm looking at the list and I think I've used one or two of these in my book. (laughs) Yes, I've probably used one or two. We can use these words and make it really obvious that we do not approve of them being used. So it it, it can be really, really obvious. So some people are more careful than others. All right, so I'm going to start out. I think when it comes to men, and especially since both of us are Americans, uh, well, citizens of the U.S., is basically any word, any N words, and you're going to know what those are. We're not going to say them today. In historical context, I've covered this before on previous podcasts with Marielle. People have chosen to like use stars in the middle instead of writing the word out. Some people choose in the historical context with certain versions of the word to use them correctly. There are respectful and non-respectful ways to do it. That's what I've said before. Do you have anything to add? Quentin Tarantino uh, is just a thought that came to mind. But uh, watching movies like uh, Django Unchained or 
the hateful eight, things like that. Uh, they use the N-word almost liberally. However, and even though it like has a tug on me every time I hear them say it, I do keep in mind that it is within historical context. And these people more than likely said the said the N-word liberally because people did say it liberally back in late 18, late 1800s, early 1900s, if you will. So within context, within historical context, it makes sense. However, I do believe that I had a friend in school who was writing a book and he thought, you know, making about sex drugs and like using as much profanity as possible will make it a good book. I was like, no, it doesn't. So there needs to be a reason for why it's appearing. Right. And I think with the, the movies you referenced, it was the time and place and the kind of characters and the use of the words told the audience exactly what they needed to know about what was going on. Right. I mean, using, using the word for those movies, it helped to further establish the time period and the environment that the movie was taking place. When, when I first met you, I didn't really know about the N-word. Like, <laughs> I had grown up. So you actually taught true. me about it. Yeah, and I you taught me that, that there, there are like three different versions of it and they all mean slightly different things. Mm-hmm. Um, so use with care. Yes. This next one is thug. Mm-hmm. Uh, historically not racially charged. Currently racially charged, especially in news realms. Yes. You want to take the next one? The next one and I actually use this one in my book, is Brute. And it's racially charged, and I could get into that. Oh, also there's the mental health and handicap issues associated with the idea of being a brute. And the whole racially charged part, especially goes back to the chattel slavery in the U.S., where um, people from Africa, the slaves, they were forced to inbreed and create basically brutes. These um, big, strong, hulking black guys who were not very smart and who did have handicaps, mental handicaps or physical health issues. So I believe that's why the word brute is, can be a racially charged word. Yeah, and it definitely relates back to the characterization of someone's personality based upon their body style. All right. And again, I did use this word in my book and I used it exactly as the connotation implies because antagonist. Yes. All right. So this one shows up a lot in news cycles or modern literature. And it's black male. And on its face, you would be like, yeah, we see white male too. What's offensive about this? It's offensive because it's coded the way it's used so often and the way because of our history in the US. And I don't know if it's the same in Europe. I didn't get to ask Marielle before we recorded this, 
but it's it's just has so much connotation behind this that it it's dehumanizing right for i can't speak for literature although again you can all of these words you can use in literature within the context to establish someone's character or the environment that the story is taking place but at least for media the idea of blackmail i most times when i see blackmail in the newsreel it's associated with some sort of crime or some sort of um usually some sort of crime is when i'll see black male but don't see it a lot with and again an associate association with crime you don't see a lot of white male being used in the same way i think that's where that racial connotation or that um offensiveness comes from yeah you'll see things like white man instead of white male oftentimes Mm -hmm. in historical readings of u.s history black male often referred to someone who was enslaved so it still carries that which is why I choose to try to not say that. <laughs> I try to refer uh, to someone as their humanity instead of their sexual designation. All right. The next couple words are actually linked, so I'm just going to cover them all together. Ghetto, urban, and gang-related are often words applied to men and carry certain, usually insults and often race-related. Yes. Ghetto in particular. It's weird because ghetto could be used both as an insult and as a praise. It's weird. I've I've have heard um, ghetto. I mean, as far as the praise goes, it's kind of like a homage or like kind of a, yeah, this is our heritage kind of thing as far as praise goes, but it still doesn't have a great connotation to it, considering that ghettos were, in Nazi Germany, the poor, dilapidated parts of town. So we think ghetto, urban, uh, gang-related. I mean, gangs tend to be in the urban or ghetto part of town, if you will. And nine times out of 10, you're referring to, in this case, either Black or Latino men. It's racially charged, it's class charged, and it has this concept of dismissing certain behaviors that come out of poverty as the fault of the people who are in poverty. Again, use it with care. I would say one of the reasons I highlighted these words were the uh, something that comes out of writing for grants actually in charity work oftentimes there's this very uncomfortable thing that happens where donors and people trying to get money from donors in certain foundations etc they use these kind of words to characterize the people that they're raising money for kind of like the the feel-good story to sell to rich people and it's weird, but it's also dehumanizing. And right. I guess it's a little bit, we should, like, that's a whole nother podcast. And maybe I can put some resources towards it. 
but it shows up in our writing as well when we like have a rich character doing something nice for these kids but we're focusing on like the patheticness like all those pictures of like starving kids in Africa and like giving their money and it's really pumping up these characters who are white and rich and making them like saintly helping these poor dark people it's overdone it's still happening like there's a coffee shop in our hometown right now that is doing this mm. and it's really uncomfortable to watch and people are still doing it. It's like inner city children has been used to the point that we immediately think of dark children. You're right. Which is inner city is the next word on our list that I was going to include. So think about what you're saying. Are you really talking about the humanity of these people? Have these words been overused to the point that they mean one thing? Whether or not you mean that, maybe you should still not use them or use them with the realization that these words have often been used to take away agency from people under these titles. This is where sensitivity reading can be very helpful. Yes, exactly. Just make sure like you may not mean it to, you may not mean it negatively, but No, you have to consider how the reader is going to take that word. Exactly. All right, I'll I'll grab the next one and then could you take the one after that? Sure. All right, so this word, Pedro, uh, it's an actual name, Spanish name. Uh, I grew up hearing it and it made me really uncomfortable once I realized that it's just a name like John in English, a common name, but it's used to kind of like classify a whole race of men in a certain connotation a certain class and I grew up hearing it from family members anytime you hear a word and then it's like the number one name that you go to for a class of people that might not be as well respected as another class of people in your area and every country is going to have a different name a different version of this where it's a common name that kind of becomes an insult for a particular group of people. So be careful. I will not probably ever name a character Pedro just because that's what it evokes in my head now growing up on the border of the U.S. and Mexico. All right. So the next one being beta male. And, you know, just the idea of the alpha male the beta male think there's like the omega male like they have all kinds of alphabet greek alphabets for men and what makes beta male of course as many of you may not have already figured out so offensive is you're basically saying that this man isn't strong or dominant you know he's not he is not worthy of the respect that the quote-unquote alpha male the more dominant one has and as a result you know the alpha male he gets all the girls or boys depending how you're writing the story and the beta male is just kind of slinking away into the shadows and there are many people I mean in some ways I consider my in some circumstances I would see more quote-unquote beta male but there are guys out there who have the quote-unquote beta male personality or some characteristics of it and they are 
not. It's, they're just they're more dominant in other fields as opposed to the one they find themselves in. Uh, to say that someone is a beta male, and this goes to all the worst, really, it's really just making him into some sort of other. Or undesirable. Uh, this is something I really came across in like internet speak and chat forms and stuff like that. And I'm like, could we find a word that's respectful for people who are followers? Because we need way more followers than we need need leaders. Most of us are not true leaders, despite what our school system tries to teach us all we need to be. Mm-hmm. But that's that's my thing. This one for me is completely an insult. And I can't think of a positive way to use this one. And there is nothing wrong playing the support role. People love a right-hand man. I would pay gold for awesome supports. Oh my gosh. And I have been that support that someone absolutely needed. And it's so satisfying to like be that steady, help something through. It's a role that we all switch through. Sometimes we lead, sometimes we don't lead. And I think to actually have flexibility to be able to swap back and forth is amazing. All right. And just another thing to consider as far as like men following and supporting like the quote unquote dominant male or whatnot, consider this. Let's say that you're writing a book and you're trying to find a way to get to or assassinate, let's say a mob boss, why not? And you realize that the best way to get to him is through his right-hand man. Suddenly, the right-hand man is more important than the mob boss. (laughs) I would also say that we've already talked about Lord of the Rings. So going back to Sam Gamgee, if he hadn't picked Frodo up and carried him to the mountain, story would have ended much, much differently. These support roles... These people that keep towns alive, who show up every day, who do the backbreaking work that society needs to be done, that should have respect. But now I think we're getting on our social <laughs> soapboxes <laughs> and not talking about writing. I'm just saying they still make awesome characters. Sam is one of my favorite characters in literature everywhere, and he's a gardener. <laughs> All right. Worthy calls. Yes. All right. So the next one is uh, a British word, tosser, which I kind of had to look up. I think you actually know what this one is better than I do. I've, okay. So I have used this word, not to other people. I think I've used it while playing video games and talking about the characters I had to fight in the game. Yes. I've heard you call characters this word. (laughs) Right. And I've always understood it as being asshole, like calling someone an an asshole or a douche, if you will. Yeah. So that's how I've understood it. Now, I'm not British. I haven't actually taken the time to really look up what the word means. Check with your British friends when using. There's the ever-present F word that I don't like to say. I think this one doesn't need much explanation. No, it's definitely one of those words that I have a hard time bringing myself to say. I 
I think within certain special contexts, especially, no, no, that's not right. No, I still can't really think of a time I would actually say it. I don't want to say it for sure. Yeah, it's something I would only let some a very bad character say and then right. punish him for it. I I have heard rumblings that some people within the community that would be identified by this word have tried to take it back or use it on each other. If you are not inside that community, back off. I, I yeah. would just actually say back off. Don't use it. If you're not inside that community, don't try to reclaim it. Don't try to use it because you're being nice about it. It's not one of those words you can do that with. You're either in the community and maybe you can use it. You probably don't want to. Maybe depending on region experience, etc. If you're not in it, stay away. Agreed. All right. You want to take the next one? Let's see. This looks like the angry white man. I found uh, this on some list. It surprised me. You know, it's I I I'm a little conflicted by this one. And here's the reason why I'm conflicted by it. Just because you're white and you're angry about something does not make you an angry white man. At the There's same, connotation that you're angry about certain things. Right. The, the connotation being, you know, this angry white man might be a racist or a bigot of some sort, especially if he's angry in the presence or as a result of someone who is a person of color or someone who doesn't look like him. The reasoning may actually be justified. You know, maybe the other person actually punched him in the face and now he's angry about it. Can't just say, oh my gosh, he's a bigot. No, that doesn't make any sense. But society who didn't see the punch to the face and they just see this man being angry at this person of color or uh, minority character, they may think, oh, you know, Jim here, I'm just picking some random generic name here. No offense to anyone named Jim. He, he must be a racist because he's shouting at this um, poor minority character for no good reason. But I think that would be an interesting situation. However, when we talk about angry white man, and the reason why I feel that it kind of works for this list and kind of does not work for this list is because the other words that we've used so far has been used against people who are who are historically not in power or not as privileged, at least in American or Western societies. And we're talking in English, so we're mostly talking about books written in English or stories in English. So, yeah, I, I think it's something that angry white man has become such a coded word that we have to use it knowing that there's coded language behind it but I wouldn't exactly call it derogatory. So, right. There's that. It's like you wouldn't go down the street and you see, I'm going to call him Bob again, no offense to anyone named Bob, but it's not like you're just going to walk down the street. You see a guy named Bob minding his own business. Maybe let's say singing Metallica music. 
because that's the band I could just think of off the top of my head that I like. And you're just like, oh, look at that angry white man walking down the street. Bobby gets no, he's singing Metallica. <laughs> and if he likes some of their lyrics, he might be angry for a really good reason. <laughs> Maybe, but he doesn't really fit angry white man. Yeah. Yeah, it's it, yeah. nuance, people. Nuance. All right, so let's try to get through some of the rest of these before I'm like have to make this into a two episodes again. Okay. <laughs> the next one makes me sincerely uncomfortable when we opened up our relationship because we're poly, so we both date other people as well as be married to each other. Mm-hmm. And then I would see these like dating sites and stuff looking for a black buck, and I wanted to crawl up walls. Oh, but black this buck, is... you say? <laughs> yes. I think I know this is a word related to black people, but I'm totally talking about it myself right now. It's it's dehumanizing. It is this mm, black buck makes me think of another word. It's actually not on this list, but I think it's worth bringing it up as well. Uh, Have you heard the term mandingo? I'm not that familiar with it. No. Okay, so. During the time of slavery and so forth, the idea of uh, mandingos were these big black dudes who could fight and very vicious, sometimes they'll fight to the death. And they're basically animals. They're basically treated like animals, but maybe a little better than animals or a little better than the other slaves because, you know, they're like prize fighters and so forth. But the idea is that um, black buck mandingo they're these big powerful black guys full of vitality um and you know they can rock your world if you will sexually i feel slightly dirty right now it's (laughs) some people i know there are black people who like yeah i'm a black buck or whatever but it really is this kind of putting you in this box that all you're good for is a good one night or being a sex slave. Yeah, because buck is the term used for male goats, which male goats that have not been fixed, so they're still virile, you can smell them from 20 feet away. Like they they sent out this must to tell female goats, I can give you kids. Mm-hmm. Yeah. On. So it's it's it has more of that that undertone of like brute or that we talked about before this in uh, relating men to more animalistic things. Um, All right. All right. So let's keep going. Uh, We have Bubba, which showed up in some list. I hadn't really thought of this one as an insult, but then I guess it could be because it kind of implies that the man is not intelligent possibly inbred yeah um so use with care i know that sometimes it can be used without being an insult or can even be used affectionately but this is a case where i would say if you're outside of a community that actually uses this word naturally at least get someone to double check your uses of this word you may not need a sensitivity for reader for everything but get that checked the way you're using it you want to take the next two or three? Because I've, I've been on a roll. Okay. Well, I feel like these two are pretty self-explanatory, but dick and dickhead. 
I mean, again, men are not just penises. Although dick and dickhead, basically asshole, douche, prick, jerk. Yeah. I mean, sometimes the insult is warranted. These aren't words. These aren't words that I would say you can't have a morally sound character use. I think you can have this. This is less uh, less egregious than many words that we've covered. I agree. Yeah. Although and, and the there, net. Oh. I mean, even between friends, sometimes it can be used in a joking manner. Right. The next word, however. You had to explain this one to me I years did. ago. <laughs> I did. Because I never heard this term before. And I didn't realize that men did this. And I was afraid that I was doing it as well. So, so what's the term? The term is mansplaining. Yes, I nearly died laughing explaining mansplaining to you. I had no idea what it meant. I do now. I'm cured, but at the time I had no idea what mansplaining was. You don't do it, which is probably why no one had called you out for it because you just don't do it. <laughs> but mansplaining is when a man uh, explains things basically because he's a man and he thinks he knows it and he doesn't, especially to women. Uh, some of the best examples of mansplaining was like a NASA scientist wrote a book and she was at a party and a guy started explaining science to her, not realizing she knew way more than him. And he was saying that she needed to read the book she wrote and wouldn't let her was like insulting her and saying that if she'd read this book, she'd know better when she had written the book. And he didn't realize that a woman had written it partially because he was so egotistical and looked down on women so badly he didn't realize a woman could have written that book well apparently he did not read very well because there's the (laughs) author name and there's the internet you can look up i digress yes so is this pejorative yes is it usually a pejorative that's well earned yeah i would i would say usually yeah, you again, it's not like you're walking down the street and you see a guy explaining something. You're like, oh, he's mansplaining. It's more of a, he's talking about something that he is not an expert on or doesn't know much about, but he's talking as if he is an expert or he knows about. Yes. Now, if someone accuses a man who's being genuinely helpful and humble about what he's doing as mansplaining, that is very hurtful. If he's not actually mansplaining and you accuse him of mansplaining, which I have seen done, that is really bad and really hurtful. And you should only accuse someone of this if they're really doing it. So if you're writing a book and you're writing character dialogue, like make sure that it's really used. Or if someone accuses someone of it and they're not really doing it, that should be a problem. All right. right. Okay, the next couple are all linked. I'll say them and then you can comment if you don't mind. I'll do my best. All right, so we have girly man, fruit, sissy, and soy boy. 
they're kind of all used for a similar class of men, similar presentations. Right. This is the whole men who aren't men, but they're more feminine than masculine. Men who aren't men or men who are men? Men who are men, but they're more <laughs> okay. feminine than masculine. They have feminine attributes. Yes. Right. So these all fall in the category of, yeah, probably shouldn't use these casually. I will say using the word fruit. Fruit was used in a great way that I heard once for anyone who may be familiar with this Dragon Ball Z abridged or just Dragon Ball Z in general. You have Vegeta, who is this very proud, very arrogant who probably would mansplain um, character. And he has a son out of wedlock who eventually comes to the, he, the future version of him comes to the past. But in Dragon Ball Z Bridge, um, Vegeta is talking to the antagonist and he's, he looks to his son and he basically says, unlike, no, he looks to the bad guy and tells the bad guy, unlike you, you're, you're only a part of me. My son, he's like half of me. He's like, of course, the other half looks like his mom. Just look at his hair. He looks like a fruit. And then he clarifies. And I don't mean a homosexual. I mean a literal walking piece of fruit. And then he said eggplant. And the reason why I liked it is because he using, he's using the word fruit as an insult, but he's not using the insult as we would normally think of the insult being used. And then he names a food group that is not a fruit, which really wraps up the whole idea that Vegeta is not very smart. That's using insults in an inverse manner to say more about the character than what the character is actually saying about anyone else. Right. Which is brilliant writing. It was amazing. And it's one of those lines that sticks in my mind every time I see that. Yes. So I would just say what I've said about some other words before. If you're not in the community, be very careful using these words. And um, we have just a couple more. Like we've said before, this list is not exhaustive, just representative. So we have gorilla, which I think we've kind of covered this when we covered thug, brute, etc. Right. Extremely racially charged in most cases. Just don't do it. Just mm -hmm. really don't do it. Um. We have Ponce, which is British. So make sure you understand how you're using that. Um, Pillock, also British. Uh, so realize these are pejorative insults. And if you're writing British, you'll understand them. If you're not, look them up before you use them. Caveman. Sometimes this can be used in ways that are funny and helpful. Um, like we'd be like, yeah, he went all caveman and saved me. That's usually a compliment, but sometimes it's also an insult. All right. Now, if your character is a man, he lives in a cave, then, you know, if he literally chose to live on a cave on a deserted island, well, I guess he could be an island man too. So hmm. I still wouldn't call him a caveman just because. It's not a direct translation, like language changes and has connotations, just like angry white man has now come to mean someone who's probably racist or mm. misogynistic. So 
I mean, it would be technically correct, but no one would understand you. Just saying. (laughs) (sighs) And um, then we have pansy, which uh, is, again, pretty much an insult for a man who has attributes that are usually ascribed to the opposite gender. All right. So, and then we have this last word, um, which can be assigned to men or women, but it's usually only assigned to women, which is bastard. And is, this is only assigned to women? Only assigned to men. Okay. Spoke. Yeah. And this is a complicated thing. Like in some communities, it's softened to the point that it's just almost just funny. Like someone you would yell at your friend when they steal your ball and you're playing tag or something. Mm-hmm. But in some cases, is still extremely hurtful. Right. I know there's a point in time for me personally that this word was hurtful because the actual definition of the word bastard is a child born out of wedlock, which means, you know, that child is quote unquote illegitimate, an illegitimate child. And again, speaking to othering people to being less than human for men that's in a way that's saying you can't be a real man because you're not a legitimate human well you're not going to be in line of succession for inheritance you're not acknowledged by your father you usually grow up in poverty and in some cases will even historically would even be driven out of communities or just really considered less than it's truly an insult especially in certain religious communities it's just it's not something you've done and you can never get rid of it Mm -hmm. um yeah all right so i think that's enough words to kind of give people an idea if you don't know if a word is an insult or not look it up it can change over time so check your etymology and your history if you're very concerned or get a sensitivity reader in. So it seems to follow naturally from words. Let's talk about name calling and power. We've definitely touched on this a lot, but let's bring it out a little more. I was thinking about this when I heard someone else call someone else Chad, like he's a Chad. And it's a... Do you have any thoughts on this, like using it in writing? For me, when I use this in my writing, a lot of the name calling came from my antagonists. And we typically, there's this belief that if you can't say something nice, don't say anything at all, or you shouldn't be mean and call people names. Name calling kind of establishes that Maybe you don't think highly of someone or you hold this biased belief, so forth. So that's why I use it for my antagonist a lot, because he will definitely call a group of people different names. Um, It's low investment antagonism. Right. Doesn't require a lot of intelligence. It doesn't require a lot of thought. It shows a lot of group think. So when I'm working with an intelligent antagonist, someone who's trying to tear someone apart, they will only use name calling sparingly 
they're going to go after like the insecurities of the person they're antagonizing. But when I want to show that someone is less intelligent or less invested in what they're doing and they're just going for a cheap shot, that's when I'll have an antagonist use name calling. Or when I have a hero or someone driven to their limit and they don't have that much brain space left, they might use, I'll use name calling then to show that a character just is like, can't even think, but it's having this outburst of emotion that's negative towards another character. That is another thing to consider is that when you use name calling, it's not always, it doesn't have to be knowingly antagonistic. It could just be a social norm as well. That's another thing to consider when writing characters, male characters, is when they're name calling someone, is it part of their society? Sometimes when I'm designing a new society, I'll actually build name calling into it and it'll be unique to that. It won't be a word that everyone else knows. It'll be unique to that world that I've built and built into the world building of like, this is a name calling because of X. Uh, Like in my The Queen's Enforcer, some people are called night children, implying that they're literally the children of hell. And that's an insult and it's used just for that. It's It's a form of name calling. But there's also positive name callings. We have that in day-to-day life and we, we have that in our stories as well. And that also allows things. Like he's a real Hulk is usually actually a, a compliment. Right. And again, the name calling also gives connotations of what the person who's being called the name, who they are as well, or defining some of their characteristics. For example, you saying that he's a Hulk, instantly you're thinking, oh yeah, he's this big, burly, strapping, probably young lad. Yes, but you also know the time and place of the writing. So something that I have to do a lot when I'm editing someone's work is be like, all right, you're writing high epic fantasy, but you just used an MCU reference to name call someone or compliment someone. Nobody in this world has ever seen the Marvel Universe on screen they're not going to use this word so we have to really double check ourselves or even check the history of words and be like would this show up because so many times as writers we don't even know where these words come from Mm. and that actually comes up in my book in my book i did not but i guess i did come up with a new term for name calling but at the same time it's not that they came up with a derogatory name to call a certain group of people. They were just calling them like their nationality. So for example, you know, we're Americans and this happens in daily life too. Like, oh, look at that American over there. You know, automatically there's implications or connotations behind the word American. You know, time and place, at least within 200 years, you know, that the person saying it is probably not American. Right. And there's just so much. It actually, name calling can be a really powerful tool. And just as a side note for looking up words, like someone was reading one of my, like an excerpt I was sharing with some authors and they were like, oh, you can't use the F word. Like fuck wasn't used back then. 
I was like, yes, it was. Yes, it that was. word is way older than you think. <laughs> like here, here's the history. It was used back then. Mm-hmm. It, it, it amuses me that we think so much of our insults are new and some of them are very, very old, even though it feels modern. Some of it's very old and some of it actually is like five years old and we forget that we just made it up. So, so one thing that I'm not sure we've said clearly yet, but something that's come up as we were preparing and trying to just define maleness, like that was, that was a big struggle for me as I was preparing for all of these episodes was defining maleness, defining what a woman was what a man is and maleness is to be honest a station and each culture each time periods in each culture defines these stations differently is there anything else that we want to say on this topic before we move on one thought that came to mind and this goes back to you know if i guess if men were more into things than people, then why are there so many male CEOs or male politicians? But another thought that came to mind is, you know, it feels like sometimes, depending on the culture, the definition of, of maleness is contingent on how many rights that male has. Yes. So, so some cultures, it's like, if you have more rights or more privileges than you're, you're more of man. a man. You're yeah, you're more of a man. You're more respected. You're more recognized as a man. Doesn't mean you have to be honest. Doesn't mean you have to be a good person, but you're more, you'll be treated more as a man as opposed to somebody who has less rights, but trying to do the right thing. Yeah. It's almost like you get to climb the man ladder. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm just thinking it's made out of beef jerky. Go on. Oh, no. I think the vegan people who define themselves as masculine will come after you. Yeah, they'll, they'll come after me. But yeah, this is actually something that I wish we had more on matrilineal cultures or matriarchal cultures to dig into to compare this to. But since we're working in English, there really wasn't much to pull from a definition of masculinity that isn't tied to power and dominance. Right. I see it developing. I'm really excited about younger generations. It's happening, but that is something that, that we did see across cultures as, and, and definitely, definitely anything in English. <laughs> I but. agree. But it goes back to, as well as, when we're talking about making males or um, defining maleness, it probably is still in relation to race, ethnicity, and religion. It's always just a good rule of thumb to try to avoid the stereotypes. Yeah, avoid them. But I think as writers, we have to be aware of what they are. Right. And then write through that. No, avoid. You don't have to completely eschew them, but don't don't rely on stereotypes. Yeah, they're they're fun for jokes. They're fun. Oh, they're for fun for jokes. <laughs> they're fun for juxtaposition, but they make for fairly flat 
characterizations. Like you would say the Disney film Moana has that stereotypical buff guy. I like in one of his song lyrics, I think he even calls himself like a stereotypical, like in some sort of strong man word. And it's hilarious and well done. But then he has a softer side. He has a struggle. He has all of his internal multiplicities of himself. He actually like has both sides in the picture graphs and his tattoos. So that took the stereotype, was very aware of the stereotype, and then went farther with it. And for me, that's really good writing. Understanding masculinity, understanding the male character, and then creating a complex human being. I I would agree with that. All right. So is there any male characters that one or the other of us would just not write? Like, don't feel that we could write, feel that we would need more research. Like, where are the limits of what we feel we could do? For me personally, I, as it stands, I cannot write a good First Nations person, male or female, but I cannot write a good one because I do not understand that culture. I'm not of that culture. I haven't researched or asked people from that culture. And it depends which tribe we're talking about because there's different groups of First Nations people. So I could not do it just because I am in the best sense of the word, ignorance of these groups of people. Yeah, there would be a lot of research. I think with enough research, I would feel comfortable doing a secondary character or a minor character of First Nation descent. But I would be careful to make sure that I wasn't telling their story, a story that's just because they're First Nation. So this is their story. This is their experience as a First Nation person. I would be like, they go to the same high school as somebody or they work in the same office. But I would still... I would still be doing research just to pull that off. I couldn't do it today. It would be like, oh, I would like to have this character here. Let me go do my work first. All right. Me personally, Um, I think I would like to, if I was to write someone from a First Nations tribe, personally, I would like to spend time in that community because I understand people best by spending time in their communities. Yeah. But that would require me having a lot of money and time. Perchance. 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 Or just circumstance. Exactly. Which is how we've ended up in so many of the communities that have already shown up in both of our books, actually. Circumstances. (laughs) (laughs) Chicago has heavily influenced your writing. I know that. Yes. Yes, I'm so totally outing you on this one. (laughs) No, it was definitely Chicago. That's why I started writing the book. All right. So some areas um, that I see writers struggle with when writing maleness coming from a Western European U.S. perspective. Um, usually write white, write white writers. Um, they can struggle with writing East Asian males, South Asian males, 
um, Asian subcontinent, including India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, uh, male representations from these areas by white writers historically have been problematic in English. So don't rely on reading a bunch of stuff already written about this area or men in this area and assume you know how to do it. I'm just going to warn you right now. It's been done badly and it's been done badly often. So you have something to say. Go ahead. I was going to say, if I could add to that, I would say um Mexican Central American South American um representation in media that's already been presented maybe not recent but I often think that representation of these people groups feel slanted in a way as well even ethnographies or social anthropology go see who's doing the research double check their biases. When I was doing research on East Asian characters, back when I was a teenage writer trying to research a book, I'd be realizing these are really other portrayals. And I look it up and realize that the author was from Oxford in England, uh, the British Isles, and may or may not have ever even been to China. I would be like, that's why this feels kind of weird. I would like to actually go to China, which is what I later did to try to learn how to write these characters. <laughs> so check your sources. Don't assume the media is telling you what you need to do. Go see who was involved. That was one of the amazing things that came out of um, the film Coco is mm -hmm. that they actually scrapped everything partway through and hired on cultural advisors for every level of the film and then it was well received so go look for stuff like that i would think in Kanto too yes yes um which i actually marielle and i did an entire episode on that film oh okay then <laughs> you go that's back how and well it, it was done <laughs> yeah. so the other thing i would bring up and sorry I'm doing most of the talking here is that no in today's age go on Netflix go on Hulu go on TikTok YouTube we are blessed now unlike when I started writing over 18 years ago and I was limited to my little town's library that was extremely slanted we can actually go and watch other cultures own media so other cultures in the U.S., there is so much Korean drama on Netflix now. It's amazing. That's I don't watch true. a lot of it, but I watch some of it. It is beautiful. Extremely beautiful. The beauty standards in Korean drama are unreasonably high and largely fuel uh, plastic surgery industry that is off the chain. Mm-hmm. But if you want to go look at what people are saying about themselves, you can actually do that now. I was just thinking another group that I feel that we are seeing more representation of in a broader sense in recent years or within the last decade, in a way, is the LGBTQ community or LGBTQ men. And they this... really do explore a plethora of the definition of man. Right. I'm thinking of the BBC Sherlock Holmes series, Moriarty. I 
love Moriarty. I don't know if he is queer or not, and queer being part of the LGBTQ acronym here, but I don't know if he is or isn't. He codes that way. And I just love how not sinister, but kind of dastardly he is. It's like, it's a type of dastardly that I enjoy watching. He's willing to break social codes in certain ways. Mm-hmm. And that's what gives him an edge. It's really well done, and it's really well done, that kind of body presentation, the slight nuances of the way the character is acted in conjunction to Sherlock, who also slightly breaks the social norms, doesn't get it, doesn't realize it. Uh, The conjunction is really well done because it could be insulting to queer presenting men, mm-hmm. but because of the context of the entire show, it's not. Right. I mean, Sherlock does, well, I don't think he codes queer, at least not in the obvious sense, but I think one of the reasons why Moriarty's character works so well is because Sherlock is so different. He is not the quote-unquote typical stereotypical male character. I think Watson is a better stereotypical representation of maleness, if you will, compared to Sherlock in the series. But he's not necessarily the big strongman leader. He really is a support and a beautiful, absolutely wonderful, stable support character. Right. I mean, Sherlock would go off the rails without Watson. Yes, he would. <laughs> yes, he would. He should not be unsupervised. He needs, he needs, he needs supervision. Nice steady hand. Yes. I mean, that is part of what I like about the show is all the different kind of men that get represented. Yes. Yeah. All right. I would actually say another BBC show that really explores different kind of men and gives more body types and more styles is the Doctor Who series, the the recent ones in the last 10 years or so. I have appreciated what they've done with that. I'm assuming Doctors 9 and onward. Exactly. Okay. Doctors 9 was still pretty almost stereotypically male. But 10, 11, 12, I think we're on 13 now. Um, I don't think, I think 13 is actually, uh, comes back in a female body. So she. I, but I'm going through the doctors now, the ones I remember anyway. I need to catch back up on the show. Um, 10, 11, 12. Because t- I think the twelfth time he had a new lease on life, or I never really understood it. But I think after being the older gentleman, he comes back as in a woman's body. Yeah. yeah. All right. So moving on, 
because we are kind of running out of time here unless I make this like a four part show. We can do this. We can do this. <laughs> Uh, there are limitations that we sometimes unconsciously apply to our male characters by not allowing them to experience things that are usually ascribed to the female experience. So I'm going to go through some of these quickly. I don't want to overly focus on any of them, but then I'd like your input. For example, Mm -hmm. you see this show up more in queer literature, but, um, it's not I, don't, I wouldn't say that they need to be shown all the time, but this acknowledgement that it can happen to male characters too. That's what I'm getting to. So acknowledgement that it can happen to men too. For example, rape, body insecurity, as we already covered. Clickish behaviors. Boys can have clicks too, believe me. We just call it other things. Um, gossiping. Some of the best gossips I know are actually men. Yes, they are. And gossiping men actually make for great characters and dialogue. If uh, you are, if anyone in the audience is a black man or woman, um, if you ever go to a black barber shop, they gossip all <laughs> the time. You can't escape it. <laughs> the TV may be on. They're gossiping. I think, there's over. Entire sh- I think there's an entire show called Barbershop that is basically that. That's what- I think it's a movie. Okay, I need to see it. It's on my list. It's nothing but gossip. <laughs> so <laughs> gossiping. Yes, men do this too. Um, sorrow, feeling sorrow. I'm really happy that this is one thing that seems to be a lot more accepted now, but I think we shouldn't forget that it's something that we all need to double check and make sure we're allowing our male characters to feel sorrow. Mm-hmm. Not just rage but actual sorrow. And then um, on a general note, as we're doing plots, as we're thinking about what's possible for our characters, be conscious when we're writing of not assigning character experiences based on gender alone. Um, Guys experience and can experience pretty much anything a woman can and vice versa. And when it comes to people on the gender sexuality spectrum, that includes pregnancy. Yes. Periods, people who are intersex, like throughout history, this has happened. And then one of my favorite things is guys can be carried by their girlfriends. I would like to see this in a book. I don't (laughs) know what you're talking about. It could happen. I know I never been carried by my girlfriend or wife. (laughs) (laughs) Let's not talk about the time you carried me. Just once? (laughs) (laughs) All right. I will say, kind of touching on that again, really quickly. And in a way, it kind of feels like we're starting to beat a dead horse here. And I apologize to the horse. But this really goes back to all of these experiences that we're talking about. They are human experiences. And men are human so there's no reason to say that oh yeah there's no again you don't have to go out of your way to make your male character experience these to write a good male character but don't be the person who says oh my male character can't have this happen to him even if the story calls for it just because he's a man 
Exactly. I would say that one of the things that has helped both of us as writers is reading about men, reading thoughtful things about men outside of writing advice books. I will, I will never get over saying that autobiographies and books on psychology, et cetera, have helped me be a better writer of male characters as a woman because it made me think about things that I didn't just naturally think about. Mm. Considering I, the series I'm working on right now is heavily male dominated, that's been really helpful. We're kind of wrapping up here. So let's just talk about some resources to get people started. I'll have a more extensive list in the show notes, but were there any you wanted to mention? There's a podcast I used to listen to on a regular basis. Now I don't do podcasts as much, but this podcast and website is called, believe it or not, The Art of Manliness. And the reason why I wanted to bring up this one is because it was the first time I saw manliness represented in a healthy way, where it's not just about how to change a tire or how to mold a perfect yard or cook the perfect steak. It's also about how to take care of your body or ways to express your emotions and feelings and how to be a better leader or a better listener. So they have a wide range of skills and characteristics that they cover in their podcasts, as well as going over, going through autobiographies or biographies of people in history. So I enjoyed, I enjoyed that podcast. Yeah, I really appreciated the book, The Mask of Masculinity by Lewis Howe. Mm -hmm. He also runs a podcast, but I read his book and he just digs into maleness in a Western US context. But a lot of what he says can be extrapolated out from that and give you a starting point. And it was just very thoughtful and very open. And I felt it helped me as a writer and also helped me relating to the men in my life as a woman. Hmm. So books like that are helpful. If I could recommend another book. Go for it. I would say Terry Crews' latest book called Tough. And this book really resonates with me because I, I recognize a lot of the things that he talks about in his book, how he grew up as a young man and the social expectations put on him. But it also talks about how he started to heal from the toxic masculinity that was put upon him. And I thought, you know, this is, I think this is a really good resource if you want to write a character who starts off as a toxic male, you know, the stereotypical martial male and how he heals to become a better person and to help those around him. I'm looking forward to reading that. I gotta swipe your coffee. But I would say that this is going to sound really dark for a second, but understanding why toxic masculinity exists and how people become toxic is important when understanding how to break a character and then how to put one together. And sometimes we're not going to put a character back together. Sometimes that's not what the plot calls for, but we write much more powerful stories. We write more compelling stories when we understand why people are broken and why people are healthy. 
rather than just writing from the stereotypes, which is one of the reasons that no matter what character, what kind of male character I'm writing, I really appreciate these kind of books that start and tell both ends of the stories, like The Mask of Masculinity or Tough by Terry Crews, which you've told me enough about that I know that, that exists in that book too. Yes. So, all right. Do you, we'll put the rest of the resources and suggestions we have in the show notes. They'll probably be extensive as always. All right. I'm looking forward to getting your next draft. I, I, I want that next book from you. Just saying. Outline's Social mostly done. Here. Social Out- pressure here. Outline's <laughs> mostly done. I did start writing the draft. There's just things. There are things. There are, always there things. are things. Well, thank you for taking the time to do this, uh, this mini series with me. I really appreciate your input both now and for many of the years that I've been writing books, you've been my sounding board and perspective giving one of one of the range of people who give me perspective. And I appreciate that and want to say thank you. And thank you for sharing that with our audience these last two episodes. Thank you for having me on the podcast and marrying such a strange, weird person that is me. <laughs> that is my pleasure all right take care everyone next month i'll be coming back i will be doing um one more episode without marielle because she is still getting settled in her house she has three beautiful kittens which i hope you are following her accounts so that you can see them growing they are not sick anymore they are healthy Uh, but she's had to move house and had a lot of changes. So I'll be doing one more episode with another person. The next episode will be on managing our mental health as writers, as we're writing what could be a difficult topic for ourselves or just a difficult topic in general. Oftentimes we find ourselves digging into histories, digging into ideas, and we need to be conscious of what that's doing to us. And there are ways to just manage our mental health to show up better for ourselves and keep doing what we love to do. So I will be doing that with Eric Mills, another guest. And then, and then hopefully Mario will be all settled and be able to join me again in the fall. So take care, everyone. I'll see you next month. Take care. You're probably expecting me to end on the advice to write a character first and a man second, but I'm not going to. Gender is an inextricable part of who we are. It's something that's baked into our identity, not sprinkled on once we're already fully formed. To not think of a character as a man is to ignore one of the most formative qualities that would define their personality. What I would suggest is to explore every nook and cranny of your character's identity and to spend as much time as you feasibly can mixing each part of it together finding their unique backstory. Robert Wood. Thank you for joining us. Music for this show was written and produced by Eric Mills. If you found this episode helpful, Please rate and review on your favorite podcast app and spread the word so other writers can find us too. To 
get our Doing Diversity in Writing Toolkit, which includes all bonus material from Season 1. Go to representationmatters.art, that's dot A-R-T. Here you will also find our episode show notes. Happy writing, and see you next episode!